When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Today, I am interviewing Stephen Rowley about The Gunkle, his third book. Stephen has worked as a freelance writer, newspaper columnist, and screenwriter. Originally from Portland, Maine, Rowley is a graduate of Emerson College. He lives in Palm Springs, California. I had a ball speaking with him, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome, Stephen. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have you. I've been a huge fan of yours for several years, so I'm thrilled to pieces that we're getting to talk. Well, why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about The Gunkle for those that would be listening and haven't read it yet. Yeah, and I I suppose we should start right at the beginning. For for anyone who may not know or be familiar with the term gunkle, it's become popular slang in the past five to ten years or so, for a gay uncle. And and often it has connotations of a sort of larger-than-life figure. So, you know, uh, your gay uncle may may not have children of his own, although that's that's changing with the times. May uh, fly home from a, a big city um, and because they don't have kids of their own, may be able to dote on their nieces and nephews in a sort of extravagant, larger than life kind of way. I was really inspired by by Auntie Mame, actually, in, in writing this book. First, the the Patrick Dennis novel, and then it was a Broadway show and a movie with Rosalind Russell, and then a, and then a Broadway musical, and then a, a movie musical with Lucille Ball. And so it's, you know, it's had a long life, and I thought it was ripe for a modern day retelling. Tell me a little bit more just about the story generally. So it's about an uncle, a gay uncle, but what happens? Patrick O'Hara is a is a retired television star who's sort of grieving the loss of his own partner years prior. And is sort of living a very reclusive life in the desert in, in Palm Springs when he is tasked with taking in his niece and nephew for the summer after a family tragedy, and it sort of brings about a season of healing for all all three of them. I myself am the gunkle to five. I've got three three nephews and two nieces. And um, while fortunately I didn't live the the tragedy that kicks off this book, my my brother brought his two boys, who were three and five at the time, to spend a, a week here in Palm Springs. And after about twelve hours, he was <laughs> called back into court. He's a trial attorney 
and had to fly to fly back to the East Coast and left me with a disappointed three and a five year old who were as excited to spend the week with their dad as they were with their their uncle who has a swimming pool. So uh, I really had to rise to this challenge that week and and do some quick tap dancing and entertaining to keep these kids uh, from feeling too disappointed. And uh, I think I think in that week, you know, the the sort of um, nugget of inspiration was born. I was curious about that, if it was something you had ever experienced yourself or if you just came up with it with some other inspiration. Well, yeah, it was a combination of that and a long love of Auntie Mame and not just Auntie Mame, but other magical caregivers. You know, I love those stories, whether it be, you know, Mary Poppins or, or Maria in The Sound of Music or even even uh, John Candy's Uncle Buck. Um, there's a sort of a, a long history of of these types of magical characters that sweep in and dispense some life lessons and, and are gone again sort of when the wind changes, as in Mary Poppins' case. So it was fun to be able to put my own spin on that. And, and I really had envisioned it as a, as a light comedic novel. But when I sat down to start writing, life, life intervened in that I, I lost one of my very best friends from college to breast cancer. And she left behind a six-year-old son. And suddenly, my light comedic novel was sort of infiltrated by my really thinking about grief in children and and what a six-year-old might remember of their mother and how could a, a, a community of friends and relatives step in and really, really remind children how much they were loved. I loved that you did focus on that, that Patrick really wanted to talk with the children and have them sort of voice their grief and ways to remember their mother. Like even the way the book opens, I thought was fabulous with the recording what they remember about their mother. And then you're like, oh, you know, Patrick's like, I can't remember <laughs> that. We need to start over. And I just felt it was, it was so funny. Like the book is very, very funny, but it also is so touching and just touches on some really important issues. Yeah. I think it was the finding that balance with the humor and a, and a true and um, respectful way to address grief is where the, the book found its voice, you know, and it's always an adjustment trying to, to well, how much humor, how much here, how much there. You know, and a lot of the book's humor comes from Patrick treating the kids as as sort of small adults, um, right. which, uh, you know, it's just because he's unprepared to to care for kids. But sometimes in that unpreparedness comes a surprising strength. And I think particularly uh, on a serious subject like grief, honoring children and not sugarcoating things and, and really helping them feel that loss and process that loss, you know, Patrick's a character who's been hiding from the world, sort of nursing his own wounds. And I think he very much does not want that future for the kids. So, you know, he really digs deep within himself to, to help them navigate this. And, um, you know, hopefully, you know, the book is still a lot of fun. I think it's outright the funniest book I've written, but that it, but that it treats real issues with some, some depth, um, and the seriousness that they deserve. You struck the perfect balance with that because it is it does have some deeper issues, but it is so darn funny. I mean, I just was laughing out loud half the time that I was reading. Are you that funny in person? <laughs> what, I tell I'm a like, joke right now? I, I don't feel know. like I'm put on the spot. Um, I was just dying to know. I'm like, is he this funny all the time? Well, here's the thing. You know, when you're writing a novel, you can put all your jokes in and then whittle it down until just the best ones are left. So, you know, in real life, I don't have that, you know, I, I got to go on more on the fly. So I, you know, not every one of my zingers is a, is a, you know, uh, award worthy, we'll say it that, but it's hard when you're writing a novel, you know, just because of the long lead time it takes both to write and then to, and then to wait for a novel to be published. 
you know, sometimes I would write what I thought was a very clever punchline and then look over my shoulder and realize there's no one there. And and in fact, there's not going to be any laughter for maybe three years <laughs> until this book hits the shelf. It's it's the law, you know, for someone who thrives on laughter, it's a it's the longest lead time of any art form, I think, from from telling the joke to hearing an audience's reaction. I hadn't really thought about it that way. But yes, it is a very long period of time for when you finalize it till it's actually out in the world. That's sometimes kind of mind boggling to me. Yeah, but it also helps shape the humor in a way too, because you don't, you know, you don't want to topical jokes or anything, you know, because of the length of time, as I said, but you know, that publishing is a, a slow moving business. But also you you hope that book has a shelf life that's beyond the year that it's released and that someone would discover this book in the future and it might resonate with them then. So so humor really comes from character, from knowing these the you know, the Gunkle character as well as these two kids and seeing them navigate their way through not only a difficult summer, but come to appreciate the best parts of each of themselves. I agree with that completely. And one of the things I really liked were all of your references to a chorus line and a little bit of sound of music and just various theater productions and movies. I just thought that was so much fun. And I suppose you're a fan of all of those and that's why they're included. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, see that. Ha ha. How smart of me. If I make all my references dated to, the, to begin with, then, uh, <laughs> then they won't feel <laughs> as dated uh, when the book comes out. Uh, but no, you know, so Patrick's strengths, you know, as as a caregiver, and what I really wanted to explore because there are so many fascinating LGBTQ plus families now, and um, and queer people raising children. That what I thought about the strengths that the you know this community can bring, and it's really our empathy and our humor and our pop cultural references and our politics and everything that comes from. Uh, that is informed by our experience as, as living out gay lives. You know, pop culture is, is hugely important to the to the community. And so not only do I have things that, that I love, but it seemed right that Patrick would want to educate the kids in what he sees is, uh, is uh, worthy movies and, and references. I love that. And I thought it was great that he had the kids quoting Grey Gardens by the end. <laughs> yeah, because you want all you want all six and nine year olds uh, uh, quoting obscure uh, documentary films. Yeah, of course. I know, which was then made into a Broadway musical. So it was, yeah, yeah. and then an it. HBO movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like Auntie Mame, Grey Gardens has had its uh, had a, an extended life of its own. It definitely has. Well, what was your highlight of writing the Gunkle? Oh goodness, I think you know because I don't have children myself. The real highlight for me was imagining what I would have to offer or how I would either rise to the challenge or, or maybe perhaps sink in, in, in any given uh, circumstance. So, you know, I, I think there's no denying that uh, raising children is one of life's biggest emotional experiences. And I was very, sort of very aware as an artist, as a writer, not having that in my arsenal. So it was interesting to imagine that and see where that might take me. Well, I thought you did very well with that. I have three children. And so as I was reading your book and seeing some of the things that were playing out, I remembered when my kids were that age and I thought, okay, he hit the nail on the head with some of those things. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so great to hear. It's so great to hear. Because as much, you know, and as I said, I've got, I've got uh, five nieces and nephews and, and, and many friends with uh, kids. And, and, and as much as I, you know, think I've done the research, I think I know how a kid would feel. And, and listen, we were all kids ourselves one day. We're not that far removed from the experience of, of what it felt like. There's still a little bit of, you know, of a 
my own magic and my own interpretation I have to put into these characters. And so it's rewarding to hear when people think uh, they got them right. You absolutely did. Well, I love to talk about titles and covers because I think they really actually, especially the cover, say so much about a book. Tell me a little bit about the cover development for this one. Yeah, I, I love covers too. I'm, I am uh, obsessed. I love, I love a beautiful cover. There's such incredible artwork happening in, in covers now. And, and I adore this one. It does have a sort of mid-century feel, a sort of throwback to the 1950s and 60s style, almost a, like a I Dream of Genie style animation on the cover. But it's this bright yellow, which serves the story so well. Um, not only is it a book that I think will pop off shelves and, and a new release table, you know, that, that it would really jump out at you because of the color. But Palm Springs has this relentless sunshine. And, and I wanted to, it was very interesting to write about what it felt like to feel so dark inside or to be going through something like grief when the sun is so unrelentingly cheerful. And the cover is, is very cheerful. And uh, I really like that for the story. I really like it too. And it, it does look like Palm Springs. And also, I just love that, that Patrick's in the front with Maisie and Grant behind him and then their addition of the dog. So I just yeah. thought it was so well done. Did you have to go back and forth a lot on it? Or did you kind of give them some ideas and this is what they came up with? Or how did all of that work? I gave them some reference work. It's always interesting with covers, you know, contractually, the author has what's called meaningful consultation and defi try defining that in a court of law, right? <laughs> right so right. it's like, they'll ask you what you think, you can give them an answer and whether or not they listen is, you know, up to them. And listen, that's not a bad thing. I'm not, I'm not, and the writer is not always the best person to know you know, my skills aren't necessarily in marketing or in publicity or in what sells or what bookstores will order. There's a lot that goes into cover design that is beyond whether I feel it's emotionally right for the story. But the the artwork was pretty much pretty much locked into from the from the first draft of the cover. And um, what what we went back and forth on was was some of the colors and whatnot. But they, they really sort of nailed this right out of the gate. I love when I hear that, when they've clearly read the book and understand the concept of it, and then you see it, and you're like, this is great. And the font for the gunkle, for the title, is really great. Yeah, it's so fun. It's so fun. Titles are always something perhaps I've struggled with more. <laughs> with more. My first book called Lily and the Octopus, when I, when I sold that manuscript, it was just called The Octopus. My second book was The Editor, and now The Gunkle. So maybe I need to, to reach a little deeper in for, for titles for uh, something else, but We'll see. There's a, titling a book is an art form in and of itself. I agree. And it's always so interesting to hear how that comes about because it seems like it's either the title that it always was mm -hmm. or people go through like 50 to 100 titles right. and they finally land on something. But I think the gunkle is perfect. And I think it's nice when it's a simple title like that because sometimes when it's a whole lot of words strung together, I always have to sit there and think, now what order are those words in and what is the title? You know, so the gunkle is easy to remember. And like you said, it pops, you'll see it on a table and people will immediately know what it is. People seem to know what it is. And um, I've, been, I've been blessed with good early reviews, but, but more than that, early readers on, and on the bookstagram and on Twitter and, and, you know, and whatnot, people taking photos of the, of the cover and, and sharing that by swimming pools and whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a cover that lends itself to all sorts of artistic interpretation. I, I've even had a bookseller dress herself in a caftan like Patrick appears on the cover and lined up her own grandkids and recreated the oh, cover in real life. And fun. that's such a joy when, when people, you know, the, the, there's such a wonderful community of, of readers now 
which I just love because writing it can feel like a very solitary occupation. So when you see people take something that you do and are inspired to, you know, not only read it and maybe share their thoughts about the book, but then create these, you know, incredible images to share online. It's just, it's just so rewarding. It's so much fun. I love Bookstagram. I joined it five years ago. So kind of on the, you know, when it was not just beginning, but it wasn't nearly as big as it is now. And I just think it's, people are so creative and it's so much fun. And I learn about so many books that I wasn't aware of. And I'm always just amazed at people's creativity. Yeah. It's a surprising to me that they they put, they invest so much of themselves in in these books and it just, it is just pure joy for, for an author. I bet. Well, do you have a favorite of your books or a favorite character in your books? <laughs> well, that all right. Now, I don't have children. We just went over this, but but that is asking me to pick a favorite child, and uh, uh, I would be hard pressed to do that. You know, I love them all for for different reasons, and and sometimes it's not just for the for the story itself or whatever. It's for I know what I lived through to get that published or to find that a home. And so it's hard to separate out my feeling just just for the book itself. I will say Patrick, uh, while Patrick is is grieving and he's a little bit darker than I am, our senses of humor are probably most in line. And so I have a real affection for him. And um, it's hard, you know, I, I, I hear people say like, oh, I, I, I want Patrick to be my best friend, or I, I love Patrick's the you know funniest guy ever. And it, there's always a split second where I'm like, oh, I, I'll, I've got to tell him that, you know, I got to pick up the phone and tell Patrick that. And, and I was, just, you know, it's just a fraction of a second that, you, you know, you forget that he's not real. But that, that's how big he, how large he lives in my mind. I love that. I think it's so interesting when authors talk about their characters that way. Like, they, you know, in their free time, they're like, I wonder what Patrick's doing now or what's happening with him. You know, it's interesting because you spend so much time creating them. I'm sure after a while they do seem almost real. Yeah. Well, this is the, and this is the first book I've written where I I'm I'm not promising anything, I'm not saying anything, I'm not announcing anything. But this is the first book I've read where I felt, you know, I I would like to revisit these characters maybe. That that there could there's a world where there could be a sequel. We'll just say that. Oh, that's very good news. Well, before we move on to what you're working on now, I just want to talk a tiny bit about the editor because I absolutely loved that book. It was in my top 10 the year that it came out. And I was so curious about tackling Jackie Onassis and sort of where the idea for that story came about. Can we talk about that for a couple of minutes? Yeah, for sure. And I love that, you know, and (laughs) I'm thrilled always to talk about something new, but you hope that your backlist titles still resonate with people and still hold a place in their, you know, fond memories. And so I'm always thrilled to talk about previous work. Anyone who hasn't picked up the editor, it's about a young writer in early 1990s New York who gets his big break when Jacqueline Onassis acquires his debut novel for Doubleday. And anybody who may not remember, Jackie O had a 15-year career as an editor after the death of her second husband. She really went to work and um, you know, had this really remarkable third act to her life where she she had sublimated so much of herself to these these two marriages, to these very visible and, and powerful men. And uh, she was suddenly out of their shadow and doing what she wanted to do. And she had this remarkable career where she edited more than 100 titles, as I said, spanned 15 years. So it was really fascinating to research that. And I was lucky enough to have a supportive publisher who put me in touch with some of her former co-workers. And I got to speak to an author that she edited and, and um, read some of the books that she was editing at the time that this story took place. So I could try to forensically recreate her what else was on her desk or what other topics she was interested in at the time. 
you know, that, that was really fascinating and a challenge that I took very, very seriously. And so it, it's great to hear that, uh, that you enjoyed it. The inspiration from that, though, because it is a novel, I did not ever work with Jackie Onassis. Although people do ask me, you know, so so what was it like to work with her? And I was like, no, no, those two <laughs> magic words on the cover, a novel. Um, it wasn't actually me. But the inspiration came from my first novel, actually, Lily and the Octopus, which was sort of deeply autobiographical and was a book that I was expecting not really to find an audience. I wasn't even sure I would be able to publish it. I thought, you know, maybe I would have to self-publish it. You know, it's a, it's a small story and it was very deeply, deeply personal, but it did find a publisher and an audience and it became a national bestseller and was translated in, in 19 languages. And now there's a film in development. And so all these sort of very personal things I had put in the pages of that were suddenly widely available to anyone who wanted to pick up the book. And while I changed the names of characters and did my best to disguise other people, there are some some identities that are more difficult to disguise than others. Uh, mom being one of them, and <laughs> and uh, somehow readers crack that code. Yes, they're so, so smart, right? <laughs> they're so smart. So you know, ultimately, it was a very rewarding experience. But I was I was lucky, and so when it came time to to think of a follow up, I was you know I, I wrote a story about a young writer who had written about his mother and what it would be like to have a book that he thought was deeply personal, suddenly become much bigger than he expected. And so the device that I came up with was, you know, if Jacqueline Onassis had been his editor, wouldn't it, the book suddenly be getting a lot more attention than perhaps he'd intended from the outset? Well, I did not realize she had had that career until your book. And I did so much research afterwards because it was completely fascinating to me that she had done that. But can you imagine you get a book deal and you show up and she's your editor? It's so much fun. I mean, that's it. Like, I really wanted to lean into the fantasy of that. Like, what if you had the opportunity to work with an icon and what glimpses of an icon of their humanity, of them as a person? You know, there's these little little scenes with her, you know, walking on a beach or or just witnessing her kick off her shoes and tuck one leg under herself on the couch or something like like these sort of little glimpses of, you know, how we might see other people, but you never really get behind, you know, sort of the sunglasses of the iconic Jackie O. And so that was a lot of fun to research. But but not only imagining from working at her, with her from a writer's perspective, but imagine being her coworker or, you know, walking exactly. into the break room right. and she's fixing coffee, you know, like, what do you, hey, Jackie, how was your weekend? You know, like, what what would that experience be like? The whole thing was just so much fun to to imagine. I think that's what I liked about the book so well is you brought all of that to life so vividly that I just felt like I was getting a kind of behind the curtain look at her and what it would be like to work with her or to have her edit my book or whatever it was. I just absolutely loved that book. Yay. That's so great to hear. Well, and I absolutely love The Gunkle too. So funny. And I just, I can't wait for, to recommend it to everybody and to hear everybody's thoughts on how great it is. It is such a joy to finally be able to share this book with readers. Um, you know, I mentioned before, so publishing can be a slow process. So the fact that it's finally here, you know, it's it's such a summer book. It uh, you know, it looks summery. It looks like it should be thrown in a beach bag. And so I'm thrilled that uh, you know it arrives just in time for kickoff to a summer, particularly you know after a year when when we didn't really get to live a full summer last year. So I think all sorts of anticipation, and I'm I'm ready for it. Well, when we were talking about the cover, I was thinking it is the perfect beach book because just taking it at the pool or at the beach in your bag, all of that, it will be just perfect for that. And everybody will actually be doing those things this summer. Yeah. And I had uh, somebody 
Somebody uh, on Instagram reached out today and, and uh, posted a photo of the book with a comment like, "Be careful if you read the, if you read this in public because you're you're likely to laugh out loud and and uh, people will shoot you strange looks." And that that was so much fun for me to hear because I know people have sometimes been afraid of my my first novel, Lily and the Octopus, reading it in public because they they've cried and they they were like, <laughs> "Oh, I'm you you'll end up sobbing in public and just be careful, don't read it on a plane, don't read it on a train." So to have this as a nice bookend now to to that experience, I I, I think uh, it's much more it's much safer to laugh in public. I think than, <laughs> than well than than boohoo. I agree yeah. with that. I actually had started on the plane ride home. My daughter and I had gone to Southern Utah to some of the national parks last mm-hmm. week, and so I was reading it on the plane and laughing out loud part of the time. And I was trying really hard not to laugh too loud so that I wasn't embarrassing my daughter, but. There were times I couldn't help it. Well, that's great. By the way, Utah, beautiful national parks. Oh, they, they knew yeah. what they were doing when they when they founded Utah. Absolutely. We had so much fun. It was absolutely stunning. But what are you working on right now? I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. Uh, well, the uh, both Lily and the Octopus and the editor are in the process of being um, translated to the big screen. So oh, um, I did not write the adaptation of Lily, but I did write the adaptation for the editor. And so COVID has slowed down a lot of film production and the, and the development process, but but both are sort of picking up steam on their journey to the screen. So that that takes up some of my time. That's great news. I didn't know that about the editor. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's fun to imagine uh, an actress taking on, uh, on, on Jackie like this. Uh, you know, if we've never seen her this, you know, as many times as the Kennedys have been portrayed on screen, it's always sort of been around Camelot, around the White House years or the assassination. And so I, you know, I'm very excited to see this Jackie, you know, sort of 60 year old Jackie career woman portrayed on the screen. So it's, it's fun to think about different actresses and how they might, might do that. I agree. Yeah. I had a, an audible original story called the dogs of Venice come out uh, in December and that's been fun narrated by Neil Patrick Harris. It was, it was fun to write last year when we, when none of us were able to really travel. And so, so to be able to, to travel to Italy and in through fiction was, was a lot of fun for me. And I, I am working on a new book. We'll, we'll see. I don't, I don't always like to talk about it too much ahead of time, but I knew, you know, no, no judgment on any writers who, who haven't been able to work this past year, but I knew as soon as we were able to sort of rejoin the world that I would not want to be stuck to my desk. So tried to work hard last year to, to get something new done. Well, I look forward to hearing more about that when it's further along. Yay. <laughs> well, before we wrap up, what have you read recently that you really liked? Oh, goodness. Well, I, you know, I'm doing a couple virtual events in conversation. I just finished The Good Sister by Sally Hepworth, which I love. I love a good sort of, it's not quite a thriller. It's probably too strong a word, but, but uh, I, I always admire books that are very different from what, from what I write. But I, I've been revisiting some comedic novels as well in in preparation for for writing uh, and and promoting this book. So Less by Andrew Sean Greer, I recently reread, which has some delightful wordplay in it. There's a, the novel by Julia Claiborne Johnson, which I just loved, called Better Luck Next Time, about a 1930s divorce ranch in in Reno that was very funny, very heartfelt. And um, I loved that one so much. I just yeah, read it actually great? in the last couple of weeks, and it was just so good. I continue to think about it. I just love that book. Yeah, I, that's my wheelhouse. Anything that balances humor and heart, and um, may sound like I'm obligated to say this, I'm not. But one of one of my favorite funny books, <laughs> uh, the funniest book I've read in the past year, is actually my husband's debut novel called *The Star Is Bored*. Byron Lane, very very funny book. 
I still need to get to that. I have heard that over and over again, and it got such wonderful press and reviews and everything. And congratulations, because you all got married in the last year, right? We did, yeah. In the back of, in the acknowledgments of A Star is Board, he proposed. And uh, I won't give it away, but in the acknowledgments of the Gunkel, you will see my response to that proposal. And both are now documented for all time in the Library of Congress. <laughs> I love that. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Well, this has been an absolute joy to speak with you, Stephen. So thank you so much for coming on the Thoughts from a Page podcast today. Thank you for having me. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The Gunkel can be purchased at the Conversations From A Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to be read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.